Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. For today's story, we return to Scotland, to Glasgow, to look at a really disturbing story from the red light area of Glasgow's East End. If you still don't have tickets for any of my live shows in Manchester and London this week, please head to uktruecrime.com. Whilst there, take a look at another event on the 16th of May, which is hosted in London by Crime Girl Gang, a new true crime podcast. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by The Economist, the magazine for the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to know why the world is the way it is. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from world politics and business to science, technology, arts, the environment, and of course, crime. One article that really stood out for me this week was about the political situation in Turkey, where the autocratic president reacted so badly when his candidate was unsuccessful in an election for mayor of Istanbul. Is this the beginning of the end for him? The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you've never stopped asking questions, get your free copy now. To claim your free print copy of The Economist, just text CRIME to 78070. That is text CRIME to 78070 to receive your free print copy of The Economist and to support this podcast. Thank you. A huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but I'd especially like to welcome the new members of this exclusive club. That's Demi Lee Richardson, Tonjay Gilbradson and James Sheridan. Thank you all so much for your support. Before we begin, let's quickly set the context for today's story by taking a look at the music we were listening to on February the 28th, 1998. Brimful of Asher from Corner Shop topped the UK charts from Celine Dion with My Heart Will Go On. And doesn't it just go on and on? In the US, Celine was also in the top spot. And in the Australian album charts, it was a vintage year. Top of the pile was Matchbox 20 with yourself or someone like you. Followed by Aquarium by Aqua. (laughs) Oh dear. In the news this month, Carla Faye Tucker was executed in Texas. The first woman executed in the United States since 1984. The Winter Olympics were ongoing in Japan. Pamela Anderson had her husband Tommy Lee arrested on battery charges. And Switzerland's first legal brothel opened in Zurich. Today's story is from Glasgow, which has the largest population in Scotland of around 620,000 people, which also makes it the third largest population of any city in the UK. You know, it took me three visits to the university until I realised there was a tube service in the city. I'm not the most vigilant, but this saved me a fortune on taxi fares. Madge Lafferty lived in the east end of Glasgow with her husband Billy and their seven children one of whom was called Margot. She was the only girl and the second youngest. When Margot was just a toddler, tragedy struck the family when her dad Billy died. He wasn't a big drinker at all, with seven children. He couldn't afford to be if he wanted to. Money was really tight. But every six or seven weeks he did go out, and after one of these nights out he choked in his sleep. It was a devastating blow for the family. Money became even tighter after his death, 
and so Madge worked even harder and made huge sacrifices so that her children did not go without. The children too took on extra responsibility, in particular her eldest son, Monty, who was just 16 when his dad died and became almost a father figure to the other children. Jean Lafferty, writing in the Sunday Herald in 2001, wrote an excellent article on the family, which I refer to a lot in this episode. She tells from conversations with Madge how the house was a really happy one, full of the laughter of the children and their friends. It was a real open house, and it wasn't uncommon for 14 children to sit down for Sunday dinner. Monty was close with his sister Margot, and he wanted her to be a little princess, so he bought her pretty dresses. But Margot, well, she was having none of this, and was a confirmed tomboy who hated wearing skirts. Even on the trip to school each day, she would wear the trousers in which she felt comfortable before changing into her skirt at the school gate. She was a strong personality, she was pretty feisty, and she didn't take any rubbish from anyone and was used to holding her own in any argument. But Margot was also persuasive. She charmed the ice cream man to give her a freebie whenever she had no money, and she was kind and thoughtful with a real sense of being fortunate for having such a large, supportive family. When the mum of one of her school friends died, Margot brought the girl home and she lived with the family for six years, being treated just the same as her brothers and sisters. And she was a top football player as a young girl, captaining a local side and being much better than most of the boys. And many of these boys found her very attractive. She was really pretty. But Margot told her mum, I can't be bothered with it, Ma. They are too serious. The whole family was rocked by tragedy when Margot's brother Billy was killed in a car accident at just 18 years old. After a terrible 24 hours, when he was on life support before doctors took the decision to turn off the machines. The Lafferty's lived on the notorious Barlanic estate. Madge Lafferty worked hard and always had a job in hotels but unemployment was very high in the area. It was a tough place to live, with many turning to alcohol or drugs and gangs as they tried to make sense of their lives. Drugs in particular were everywhere, and Margot first started sniffing glue before moving on to even more dangerous substances. Her mum Madge said, She was a daring lassie. She wasn't scared to try anything once, but if only she'd realised where it was going to end up. Then one day Madge came home to find Margot in her bedroom lying on the floor with a blue face, blue lips and a syringe sticking out of her groin. She had discovered heroin, that most terrible of all drugs that when it takes a grip rarely lets go. This was the final straw for Madge who was happy to look after her daughter but not to also subsidise the drug dealers who caused such misery in the place where she lived and so Margot left the family home. As the drugs took hold, like so many others, Margot turned to sex work to feed her addiction. Working on the streets is of course a terribly dangerous place to earn money, but at this time, particularly in Glasgow, sex workers, as well as facing the daily horror of violence, were also being murdered. Seven women, at least seven women that we know of, were murdered in Glasgow between 1991 and 1998 all of whom were working in the sex industry at the time of their deaths. 
There was even fear that a serial killer was at large. And conviction rates for those who have violence towards sex workers are, as we know, embarrassingly bad for all sorts of reasons. Retired DCI Nanette Pollock, who led on the policing of the sex industry in Glasgow throughout the 1990s, later said, At the time, people were desperate to make the serial killer link, perhaps because they preferred the idea that it was one bad guy, rather than acknowledging the daily violence that these women had to face. Prostitution in Glasgow was normalised to such an extent that these women were seen as street furniture, and it was not until the murders that people began to realise what a violent life they led, she said. When heroin hit the city's streets in the early 90s, said Pollock, the scene changed considerably, with younger women made more vulnerable and desperate by their habits, putting themselves in danger. At the time, Glasgow Council and the police operated a zero-tolerance approach to sex work, in contrast to Edinburgh, where the council issued licences to massage parlours and saunas, effectively allowing brothels. Pollock worked with charities offering women support to exit sex work, but said the culture change took time. The police force back then was a man's world, she said, and many officers took the attitude that if you tackled prostitution, what will men do? Goodness gracious, really? But Margot Lafferty wasn't overly concerned about the dangers, as sex work was the only realistic way that she could afford the drugs she needed, so she saw it that she had no other option. The night of February the 28th, 1998 was bitterly cold, with an icy wind blowing through Glasgow. But 27-year-old Margot was working in West Regent Lane, just outside Glasgow's red light district. It was the night that Margot was brutally murdered in a deserted yard, just feet from streets packed with people during the day. DCI Pollock quickly arrived at the scene, and later told the Daily Record just what sight greeted her. The police were putting crime scene tape up, and already there were some reporters who got wind of it, and there was a buzz in the air. Lying in a corner, naked, was Margot, who was very slight, blonde, and very fair-skinned. She had clearly been brutally beaten and strangled, and her clothes were strewn around her on the ground. The post-mortem showed the cause of death was asphyxiation and blunt force trauma to her face and head. Her face was a real mess. It was obvious that a terrible fight had gone on. Margot was a nail-biter, and her nails were bitten right down, so we were unable to get any of her attacker's DNA from them. She had a lot of defence wounds. The investigation was always going to be a difficult one due to the nature of Margot's work and her customers who didn't want to be traced. It was really difficult getting information from other sex workers who were often high on substances. But there were some immediate clues. Margot was wearing a crop top and there was blood on the clothing that wasn't Margot's so it was very likely to belong to the killer. There were five used condoms at the scene and it looked as if these could be the break that detectives needed. The seaman from one led them to a construction worker from Scarborough, a guy called David Payne, who was working in Glasgow at the time and had convictions for violent sex against women. Was he the killer? He'd been jailed previously for holding up a woman at knife point and indecently assaulting her. He denied murder, and the police weren't sure, and he was all but ruled out especially when CCTV showed Margot with another man 
after she'd been spotted with him. Sure, he may have returned to murder Margot, but it seemed unlikely. There were other people in the frame, including a woman who claimed she killed Margot for making fun of her. But they couldn't pick her up on CCTV, and she didn't have knowledge of Margot's injuries, so she was ruled out. Due to the extensive fights that Margot had put up, detectives knew that the killer would have suffered significant facial injuries, and so they appealed to the public for details of anyone they knew who had recently suffered unexplained facial injuries. Detectives received a call about a 19-year-old man, Brian Donnelly, who had returned to work on the Monday after the murder with a badly scratched and bruised face. The colleague who reported him was suspicious, as he had provided different explanations for his injuries, telling one colleague that his scratches were down to a lively cat, and another that he got into a scrap at the taxi rank in town with a woman whose boyfriend had jumped the queue. DCI Pollock wasn't hopeful when she saw him at the station, commenting, When I saw this 19-year-old, cheeky, arrogant pup of a guy, never did I think he was capable of murder, or even of the extended violence that had been caused to Margot. Brian told detectives about the scrap at the taxi rank, and denied that he'd ever bought the services of sex workers. But when forensic experts took swabs, they found that his DNA matched two of the condoms at the scene of Margot's death, and the blood on the crop top. Other evidence included a leather jacket that Margot had borrowed was missing from the scene, and CCTV appeared to show Donnelly walking away wearing a leather jacket. When he was re-interviewed with all this new evidence, he changed his story and admitted meeting Margot. He said he'd been celebrating his 19th birthday that day with colleagues, and he'd used a sex worker as a treat to himself. But he denied murder. As detectives spoke to those who'd been out with him that evening, they heard of an arrogant cocky man who'd been knocked back by a number of women that night, which he took as a personal affront. And being unable to handle rejection was a theme that kept coming up in his history. The worst case was when he'd tried to set fire to the house of a previous girlfriend and her son after she'd ended their relationship. He also had a history of violence to get what he wanted, with a conviction for mugging an elderly lady. Detectives were convinced that Donnelly was the man who had killed Margot, and he was charged with murder. Meanwhile, it was a terrible time for Margot's family. Coverage in the media was deeply upsetting, especially the way that Margot's murder was seen as less devastating due to her choice of work. Her brothers didn't know she was a sex worker, and had to read deeply unpleasant and lurid details about their sister's life and death in the newspaper, where it appeared she was just treated as another sex worker, rather than the fun, loving woman they knew and adored. The family weren't allowed to cremate her in case her body had to be exhumed in the future, although Margot herself would have preferred to be cremated. She was afraid of creepy crawlies and couldn't bear the thought of worms going through her body. Later, Madge said that she thought that the bureaucrats actually did her a favour. Now I know I can go up to her grave and just stand there and talk to her, she said. I know she's never going to stand in front of me or cuddle me, which she always used to do, but at least I know where she is. At Donnelly's trial, he denied murder, blaming the construction worker David Payne. In court, the prosecuting barrister, Callum McNeil, said the following to Donnelly. 
We will never know why you killed her, whether it was a disagreement over payment, or your anger which lacked self-control, or out of shame or disgust or contempt that you had for the heroin-addicted prostitutes you had just used. You punched and kicked her and she fought back, scratching you. You were incensed, you six foot three inches tall and her only five foot. You were fueled with anger and got out of control and banged her head off the wall before strangling her and finally dragging her body along the yard. Donnelly was found guilty unanimously by the jury, but his lawyer then claimed the judge misdirected the jury and he won a retrial, but again he was found guilty and given a life sentence in February 2001. After the trial, DCI Pollock still found the actions of Donnelly hard to comprehend, saying, Of course, after having sex with her twice, and after beating her about the face and body, just to make absolutely sure, he strangled her. That really shocked me. He wasn't any innocent young boy, said Madge Lafferty. I hoped someone would kill him when he was sent into prison after the first trial. I was wishing retribution would be served in another way. There's no closure in this for me, not as long as he breathes. I believe in the Old Testament, with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, she said. In 2014, Donnelly made the pages of The Sun with the following article. Sick Brian Donnelly is due for temporary release from his sentence for killing Margot Lefferty. Prison bosses want to see if he settles into society before deciding whether he can be freed for good. But the 33-year-old has bragged to other cons about his desire to, quote, shag a prostitute. A source said, Every hooker in Glasgow needs to be warned that he is about to be set free. People should know how dangerous he is. In response to the article, Margot's brother Mark fumed. He said, he is sick and clearly a danger to women. A prison spokesman said, Temporary release on licence conditions is an integral part of preparing long-term prisoners for release. So what do you make of what we've heard today? A terrible waste of a young life, and like you, the way the attacks on sex workers are treated make me so, so angry. At least in today's story, the killer was caught quickly, but sadly, that isn't normally the case, and there are so many murdered sex workers with so few convictions across the UK. One that has received more coverage than most is the murder of 27-year-old Emma Caldwell, who, like Margot, also turned to heroin to cope with the tragic death of her sibling, and that habit led to her sex work. Emma went missing after leaving the hostel where she lived on Glasgow's south side in April 2005, and her body was found in woods at Robertson, Lanarkshire, several weeks later. The case is unsolved, and there is one strong suspect who has yet to be charged. If you aren't familiar with the case, please take a look. But be aware it's easy to see why Emma's family are so frustrated by the utterly dire police work. That's Emma Caldwell. There are, however, some successes, even if they can take many years. Just last month, a takeaway worker was convicted of murdering another Glasgow sex worker, 21-year-old mum of one, Tracy Wilde, who was murdered in 1997. But whilst her family have been living the nightmare every day since, the man who killed her got on with his life. He lived in Glasgow still, he got married, had two children, and he owned a takeaway restaurant. What we do to make these vulnerable women safe is for another podcast to discuss. But please, Margot Lafferty must be remembered not for being a sex worker, but for being Margot, 
strong, funny, bright and loving. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please join us at our Facebook group. There are 2,500 people, lots of good discussions. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show and access almost 30 bonus episodes and other exclusive content, plus to get backstage access to all my live shows, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. So that is all from me for this week. I hope to catch you in Manchester on Saturday or Camden on Monday. But until we speak again next week, go on, treat yourself to a new towel. You know why. On that bombshell, take it easy and most of all, stay classy. <laughs>